LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is James Corbett of the CorbettReport.com who joins us to provide an update on the political, economic, social and radioactive fallout from the ongoing nuclear disaster at Fukushima in Japan. The Corbett Report is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source. It operates on the principle of open source intelligence and provides podcasts, interviews, articles and videos about breaking news and important issues from 9-11 truth and false flag terror to the Big Brother police state, eugenics, geopolitics, the central banking fraud, and more. Hello and welcome, James, and thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I just wish we were talking about happier circumstances. Well, quite. We're here, James, today to get an update on the situation at uh, Fukushima in Japan. Unless people have been living under a rock for the last couple of years, they'll be aware that as a result of the earthquake and tsunami on March the 11th, 2011, there was a major uh, nuclear disaster at Fukushima nuclear power plant. Now, obviously, when this happened, the mainstream media globally were all over it for obvious reasons. But since then, the story really has kind of not been dropped, but it's, it, the profile of it is not as high as it should be. And it's been left to the alternative media to keep coverage um, alive in the intervening period. But just in the last couple of weeks, I've noticed very, very slightly... Not much, but it's a beginning. The mainstream media have begun to pick up on the Fukushima situation again. And the reason for that, I think, is because it's the situation on the ground has been going from bad to worse. Unfortunately, I think you're exactly right about that. And this has been the result of a series of leaks and um, and other types of incidents that have been occurring there that have basically, in the last month or two, let everybody around the world know that Fukushima is still an ongoing problem. And unfortunately, I think that the leaks that we've been seeing at, uh, springing up at the plant, the latest one is a uh, breach of the so-called the silt fences that are underneath the uh, the the uh the the bay itself that are actually meant to keep the the contaminated water that is spilling out near the damaged uh, reactors one two three and four from reaching the still intact intake uh, events of the five and six reactors has itself been breached so there's just another leak to add to the list that we've seen in the last couple of months that have led to some of the highest spikes in um, some of the radiation readings from around the fukushima bay that we've seen in the entire crisis but unfortunately this is only the prey I think to what could be a very well a very interesting time at any rate let's let's put the uh, the best possible spin on it with the um, the taking away of the some of the spent fuel from the spent fuel pool pool in reactor four which is an extremely delicate o- operation and one that brings with it a whole different set of concerns and a whole different set of dangers than what we've seen heretofore 
Now, we've been reading recently that uh, you're referencing these leaks, that there's been absolutely tons of iodine, cesium, strontium, all types of nasty stuff leaking out of there. Um, Is it the case that this is just a recent development or has that probably been going on since the start, but it's just that the situation is getting more critical now? Well, I think I think that's that that is in fact exactly right. This has been going on for years now, and in fact, TEPCO just recently came out this year to admit that yes, in fact, leaks had been ongoing for for uh, upwards of two years. So, unfortunately, once again, we're only getting the information um, after the fact and and only as a fait accompli, rather than as some uh, a report in progress. So, we had, for example, um, in July of 2012, TEPCO was admitting that the reactors were leaking 10 million million becquerels per hour of radiation. And uh, we have in the last two years, an estimate of 44.9 terabecquerels of radiation that's been released, including cesium-137 and strontium-90, which for those who are not well-versed in radiation is still, it's a lot of radiation that's been released. And most of it, of course, going directly out into the oceans. So it is, I think, a, a, a pretty dire situation. Um, and I, I don't want to overblow the what, what really is happening because I think there has been a tendency among certain elements of the alternative media to paint this as you know, the end of life as we know it on Earth. I really don't think that it is at this point that type of disaster. But unfortunately, with the uh, the operation they're about to start undergoing at the uh, reactor four with the taking away of the spent fuel from the spent fuel pool, I think we do have the possibility if if that goes wrong in a spectacular fashion, that it really could be a, a uh, well, an event that would affect the entire northern hemisphere. And in fact, we've had people like Arnie Gunderson of fairwinds.org saying that if the uh, reactor four containment were lost or if if there was some sort of recriticality, recriticality within the uh, spent fuel pool, it would be the type of event where you would want to vacate the northern hemisphere if you happen to be living there. So we are talking about some very serious things that are still still coming up in, in this crisis. And it, um, I mean, two and a half years seems like an eternity for us sitting here watching it unfold. But I mean, keeping this all in perspective, uh, we're talking about materials that will continue to be highly radioactive for tens of thousands of years. So I think we have to really understand that this is an ongoing situation and will be for generations at the very least. There is no conceivable way. The technology does not even actually exist to clean up the radiation at this point. And uh, this has been admitted even by the Japanese government and TEPCO officials. So we are looking at, uh, they're estimating a 40-year, half a trillion dollar cleanup, but I'm not even sure how they're estimating that as they also admit that, of course, the technology to do so doesn't even exist at this point. So I guess they're banking on the development of robots that can withstand the types of radiation that we're seeing within the the containment buildings um, uh, to be able to withstand that in order to clean it up, which is all uh, pretty much a, a pipe dream at this point. So we are dealing with some pretty serious circumstances and unfortunately the risk is uh, still there certainly with reactor four well you say banking on developing that type of robot i mean that's a bit like the nuclear industry all over really because from the start they were banking on a way to deal with spent fuel and that's never really happened it's been a case of just pile it up you know just store it and you know future generations can figure it out Unfortunately, that's exactly right. And that's that's exactly the problem with what we're looking at with this uh, Mark One nuclear reactor that is the, the design that was used at Fukushima, where the uh, spent fuel, for those who don't know, in, in the Reactor 4 building 
is housed basically directly above the the reactor itself, which does not seem like a wonderful place to put the spent fuel when uh, you're dealing with a, uh, a a crisis situation. Of course, that's that's not what they were banking on at the time that it was created, but uh, but that's exactly where we find ourselves. So we find ourselves in the situation where the containment building for Reactor Four itself is. Uh, not stable. They've they've reinforced it, and uh, but of course, in the event of a large-scale earthquake like what we saw in 2011, there's no guarantee that the building itself would maintain its integrity. And if it were to collapse, so too would the 1,300-plus spent fuel rods also come down with that building and release that radiation directly into the atmosphere. Many, many, many thousands of times more um, radiation than was released in the Chernobyl event. So uh, it's a, a huge amount of uh, radiation that's sitting there that uh, that basically is on the knife edge in many ways at the moment just relying on the support structures for the uh for the the containment building so uh realizing that this is an achilles heel of this entire situation tepco is going to start removing um the the spent fuel rods from the spent fuel pool starting this fall and it's an incredibly complex operation that they're going to do even under the best of circumstances removing the spent fuel rods from the pool requires precision uh robotics and uh and and this type of thing to make sure that the 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 rods are removed very precisely Precisely because they're not meant to come anywhere near into contact with one another because, of course, that could set off a critical uh, chain reaction. So this is the type of thing. It's very delicate, very precise work. But as Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.org has said, it's basically like trying to remove um, cigarettes from a cigarette package that itself has been crumpled while not trying to touch any of the other cigarettes in the process. It's um, it's an ex- it's exceptionally, exceptionally uh, difficult process that they're about to undergo. And uh, they have some equipment in place. Uh, they have two cranes that they've uh, installed in the steel framework that they've built around the reactor to try to facilitate this removal. And they've done some test removal of some of the spent fuel rods, but it is still... Uh, very, very much up in the air whether they'll be able to to pull this off or not. And uh, and unfortunately, as they as they experiment with this, it really is the world that's at uh, at, at nuclear hostage. Um, because if if anything goes wrong, as as has been said, the amount of radiation that would be released in this operation is was almost unthinkable. Well, we'll talk about that particular operation a little bit more in a moment. But I opened talking about the media coverage of all this. You're on the ground in Japan, how has the Japanese media coverage of this compared to what you've seen from elsewhere around the world? Well, there's obviously more of a focus on this here in Japan, and that would be to be expected. I, I, I would, I would say there have been some um, some fairly thorough newspaper investigations and series on various aspects of the crisis, and there has been television coverage and the like, and there continues to be coverage of the the uh, the events at Fukushima. So it is not uh, under a complete veil of secrecy here, but. Having said that, it isn't exactly front and center, and it's certainly not front and center in the national conversation, at least in the major media. And uh, and unfortunately, that's to be expected because the major media generally tend to be in bed with the large multinational corporations and the, the TEPCOs and the like that are in charge of the nuclear power industry here. So unfortunately, it is a big collusion that happens between the political class, the corporations and the media. And uh, that, I'm sure, takes place in every country around the world. And Japan 
Japan, no less so. So there is still a wall of of uh, not a wall of secrecy around what's happening per se, but certainly um, not the type of in-depth investigation that I think we'd all like to see. But having said that, there still continue to be cracks in the Japanese media edifice that are actually kind of surprising for for the Japanese media. And a couple of examples, in fact, one quite recently, there was a television presenter who uh, got in a bit of a kerfuffle over the fact that she dared to express the opinion that uh, she was concerned about Fukushima. And of course, television presenters here are meant to be nice, uh, smiling, happy people who never express opinions of their own. So this was a major incident um, in the Japanese media world at any rate, which goes to show, I guess, how controlled things really are. But another very interesting development just in the past day or two here, um, the former prime minister of Japan, uh, Junichiro Koizumi, who is one of the only prime ministers, certainly the only prime minister since in the time that I've been here, I've been in Japan for nine years now, the only one to last uh, multiple years has been Junichiro Koizumi. I mean, uh, the Japanese prime minister office is basically a game of musical chairs that people tend to rotate in and out within a nine to 12 month interval. So we'll see how long Shinzo Abe can last in that role. But Junichiro Koizumi actually uh, was prime minister for, I believe, five or, or was it six years? So an, uh, a very exceptionally long time because he was exceptionally popular with the Japanese population here. He, he was seen as the kind of prime minister who could cut through the kind of politics as usual in Tokyo and actually get things done. And he was seen as a kind of a go-getter. So he, he enjoyed approval ratings of upwards of 80% in his time in office. And uh, just the other day, uh, despite having been a staunch pro-nuclear advocate in his time in office, he actually gave a speech in Nagoya in which he was saying that uh, it was time for the government to, to basically abandon nuclear energy. And he said that the LDP, the ruling um, par uh, party here, should come uh, come up with a zero zero nuclear energy uh, energy policy which is i mean a, a startling about face uh, we've certainly seen um some famous people and well-known political figures and the like come out against nuclear power in recent years here and uh including even the current prime minister's wife although i i take that with a grain of salt i think that was more meant to play to an electoral base than anything else because of course it meant absolutely zero in terms of the political game here but when koizumi came out and said this it had has created quite a few headlines in the media here and really caused a stir because this is one of the few cases that such a pro-nuclear advocate has has decided that uh, the game is over and basically Japan should move away from nuclear power. So that could be a type of shift. I mean, we'll have to see how this plays out and whether this does have any political ramifications here. But it's at least a hopeful sign that things might be changing. And it certainly did generate quite a bit of news here in the media. There's been a couple of... Um maps doing the rounds that allegedly showed the spread of radiation from Fukushima and how that was going across the ocean towards the west coast of the US turned out to be not strictly accurate because it was basically representing something else, not radiation. What's the best information you have or you've seen uh, regarding where this radiation has actually gotten to at this stage? You're exactly right about that. I should tell people about that. There there has been a, at least one map that I know of from the NOAA in the United States that was spread around quite widely online and I must admit even ended up on my fukushimaupdate.com not as an a main illustrative uh, type of map that was used as the body of a text but was used to illustrate a text which is is um in error. It was showing the the actual uh, spread of the tsunami that followed the 311 earthquake. It was not showing the spread of the radiation and it was widely um, posted online as 
displaying that. So that was in error. And uh, I think that caused a lot of consternation that didn't need to be caused. Um, but having said that, uh, there have been studies that have shown that radiation um, from Fukushima has ended up in fish um, off the west coast of North America. Uh, and we're not talking about large amounts of radiation, but we are talking about detectable amounts that um, that basically scientists say must have come from uh, Fukushima because of the, the, the content of the, the makeup of the radiation. Unfortunately, I'm no scientist, so I pretty much have to take what they're saying at face value. But uh, but at any rate, the reports are up on FukushimaUpdate.com for those who are interested in that. And probably the easiest way to find them uh, in the right-hand column of FukushimaUpdate.com, there's a tags section, which has all of the, the main tags that, that uh, articles are sorted under. And one of them is ocean contamination. And there you can find out all the latest on the various uh, stories to do with the, the ocean contamination and how far it's spread. But at any rate, I mean, we, we can physically see that the, uh, the debris from the 311 earthquake has already, in fact, uh, as early as I believe early 2012 was already washing up on the shores of North America. So it's, uh, it's it certainly had more than enough time for the, the radiation to start coming to North America. But obviously we're talking about, well, I don't want to say relatively small, but compared to the, the size of the, the Pacific Ocean, um, not not the types of radiation that I think would be an immediate health concern for the people on the west coast of North America. But in the long run, and especially as this these leaks continue to happen, and as, uh, for example, the, the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Authority here in Japan recently came out to say that eventually they are going to have to dump some of the contaminated water into the ocean because they're running out of space to store it all. I think that's something that people um, in North America and South America as well should start to, uh, to pay more attention to because ultimately this will end up everywhere in the Pacific Ocean. And, uh, and we've already seen some signs of that. Some of us are old enough to remember Chernobyl, the nuclear disaster which took place in the 80s in Ukraine, former Soviet Union. And I was living back in Ireland at the time. Now, the radiation from there made its way in all directions, presumably, but certainly because of prevailing winds, it actually made its way as far as Ireland. And there was an issue at that time with uh, certain farm animals that were intended to ed end up on our plates that didn't do so because of the levels of radiation detected within them. What are we looking at? I mean, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with Fukushima in the future. But as things currently stand, how does this stack up against the scale of something like Chernobyl? Well, it's difficult to compare the two disasters because the nature of what occurred was was quite different in each case. In the in the Fukushima example, we have, of course, the core meltdowns and melt throughs. And at this point, we still don't even know where the cores of reactors one through four actually are. They're not able to get close enough and to be able to inspect them to find out where they are. And there is every indication that, in fact, they have melted through the containment, which is, of course, a a, a pretty serious situation, the most serious type of situation that you can imagine in a nuclear reactor, although, of course, it's not generally portrayed that way because it's under a cold shutdown was the phrase of choice in December of 2011 when they managed to get the water in the containment buildings down below 100 degrees. So it was uh, under con under control, as they like to say. But uh, but that's that that was the nature of the the incident at Fukushima in Chernobyl. Of course, you had the uh, the, the reactor exposed, leaking out uh, the radiation directly into the atmosphere, 
which um, was a part of that that contamination that you that you as you indicated was spreading around the world. And in fact, the first indications that the outside world had of what happened at Chernobyl was, I believe, in Sweden. I believe some uh, re- uh, workers at a nuclear test facility in Sweden were testing positive for radioactivity, despite not having before they even entered the facility, and they weren't able to understand where this contamination was coming from. And eventually, they determined well, it was coming from somewhere else, and that's where that was the first inklings that we had of, of Chernobyl, the outside world had of what happened to Chernobyl. So a very uh, a, a very different situation. There was some direct atmospheric contamination that was belching out in the first few months of the Fukushima disaster, but that is no longer the, the, the main crisis. The main crisis at Fukushima right now is, of course, the ongoing leaks that are directly into the ocean. So it's, uh, it's difficult to compare the two, um, the atmospheric contamination versus the oceanic contamination, because oceanic contamination of course disperses i think more more silently in a way it's it is more difficult to detect and it is more difficult to know in which way the currents are taking it and and where it will end up whereas atmospheric uh, uh, contamination as you say we can point to the prevailing winds etc and and sort of track the contamination as it goes so uh, so it, it is a slightly different disaster and comparing the two are difficult um, in terms of the the overall amount of uh, radiation that's been released. I believe uh, there has been a lot of uh, debate about this and, and the nature of the, the radiation that was released and how it was released to the point where I'm not really able to determine uh, what what is the the more worrying figures, whether it's the the Chernobyl figures or the Fukushima figures, because of the different types of radioactive materials that we're talking about and the different ways that they've been dispersed into the atmosphere and, and as opposed to the the ocean, I, I I think it's kind of an apples and oranges scenario. So I'm not sure that comparing the two is particularly useful. But at any rate, um, it is instructive, I think, to look at the Chernobyl disaster as an example of the way that the uh, health uh, issues surrounding these types of disasters are handled, generally speaking. And of course, uh, famously, the official death count uh, from Chernobyl is 31 deaths of uh, workers who died as a result of cancers and deformities um, directly related to the radiation who directly died in the first uh, few weeks of the disaster. But um, of course, there have been, well, at conservative um, estimates, uh, thousands of radiation-induced cancer and leukemia deaths. But um, there have been estimates of as many as one million deaths by one study that was published by the New York Academy of Sciences a few years ago. That is a highly contested figure, but it does at least go to show that there is a wide range of figures that are given for the the, the health effects of Chernobyl. And I think similarly, the fact that no deaths have been directly attributed to radiation from Fukushima is something that A, is I think too early to tell because of course thyroid cancers and the like aren't really expected to start appearing for five years um, within this type of exposure. And secondly, it does of course raise all of the same kinds of questions about how these these, uh, statistics are being compiled and who's compiling them. And it's a very interesting question because it in fact goes right to the heart of a, uh, a, a pretty scandalous state of affairs that exists between uh, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and the World Health Organization, which signed a, a secret treaty in 1959, vowing never to basically step on each other's toes in any of their work. If the IAEA were to do work within the WHO's realm of influence, then they would need approval and vice versa before doing so, meaning that the WHO 
can't really oversee anything related to uh, these types of nuclear disasters without the IAEA's stamp of approval. And of course, the International Atomic Energy Agency is really an adjunct of the nuclear energy industry in general, and it does have an interest in maintaining the nuclear energy industry and its allies within the, that uh, that industry. So there is significant question as to the the uh, uh, the uh, the neutrality of the WHO in its ability to determine things like uh, cancer-related deaths that are that can be attributed to these types of scenarios, even if we were to trust the WHO in general, and we have more than enough reason not to do so, especially considering things like the fact that they sent a, a team into Fallujah in 2004 to take a look at the effects of the U.S. Uh, chemical weapons that had been used there, and the reports of the largest amounts of genetic mal. mal-, mal- malformities and, and uh, deform birth defects that have ever been found in any population in the history of, of the world um, that uh, the WHO sent in a team of researchers in 2004 and then proceeded to suppress that report for the, pre- the preceding nine years. So we already have, I think, reason enough to question the WHO's neutrality on events like this. But this is just another reason, which again makes it very, very difficult to determine just the scale of the, the health disaster that, that has really occurred here or not occurred here, and I'm not. Um, I'm not wedded to any particular theory here. I, I really am looking for the facts, and I do think that there is a tendency in some alternative media to overblow things and to take the worst case scenario. Because unfortunately, exactly as in the the mainstream media, the alternative media too, um, uh, if it bleeds, it leads, and there is a sensational kind of uh, one-upmanship that takes place in in all of these areas. So I'm I'm try I'm wary of that, and I don't want to simply promote figures that uh, that tend to cause panic because I do understand that unnecessary and unwarranted pan- panic can be not as calamitous as a major nuclear event, but certainly can be calamitous in and of its own right. And I think that the media has a responsibility for trying to portray this as as realistically as possible. And uh, again, that's extremely difficult to do, especially when you have TEPCO and the J- Japanese government having consistently withheld key information from the media for, for years on this count. Well, as you say, I mean, cancer doesn't happen overnight. And if there are future spikes in certain types of cases, it's going to be pretty obvious. It'll be interesting to see what certain parties might try to do to spin that as like, oh, this is not connected to Fukushima. But in terms of whether it's TEPCO, insurance companies, the Japanese government, I mean, is anybody materially sort of liable for any of this? Well, the uh, the I, I believe the Fukushima prefectural government, with aid from the Japanese national government, has set up a um, monitoring system for for people in the area that they have access to. Uh, basically, um, the types of checks that that you would expect in the wake of a nuclear or radiation disaster, so that there is screening going on, active screening for for uh, thyroid cancer, especially among children in the area, and this has uh, produced uh, the result of I believe 18 children now have been uh, diagnosed with thyroid cancer um, since the start of uh, uh, since the start of the disaster, and 44 malignant cases have been reported. Um, as to whether this is an unusual spike, I'm I'm not certain, and and certainly I think the the consensus is that we wouldn't even expect to see that type of spike happening 
um, anytime within the first five years of the disaster. So, uh, so we really don't have a handle on it at this point. But there are monitoring systems in place that are being sponsored by the government. Um, as far as I know, that not only is insurance not really covering any of this, but in fact, I have heard and and it has been documented in documentaries that um, there are people have been told by insurance agents that um, people from Fukushima will not be able to to get health insurance or at least not be able to get it easily um, since this disaster has occurred I, I don't think that I, I've never seen anything in writing on this I've never seen any any sort of standard or, or expose about this so I don't I don't have anything concrete to point people to but uh, but certainly this is what some people have been told and uh, and certainly doesn't seem surprising I think um, I think we can all imagine how insurance companies would be um, well I think very reluctant to take on people from Fukushima in the wake of this type of event clearly there was a considerable zone around Fukushima which was evacuated and I read something recently I can't quite recall the source, but it mentioned that the evacuation zone had been widened. Is that the case? I think you would have to be more specific than that, because there have been different zones that were in place at different times during the disaster. And there was an initial area that um, did that was expanded at one point. But um, but I think there's been an awful lot of of manipulation with that as well. And unfortunately, I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember the name of the community, but I was recently watching a, a documentary that was documenting how one community uh, that was uh, in Fukushima Prefecture and it was experiencing the same levels of uh, radiation that were being found in the evacuation zones was not evacuated. And um, specifically, according to one of the, the town councillors, it was because the government was was worried that the if if this area were to be evacuated that was slightly further away from Fukushima itself, then they would uh, basically have to to evacuate Fukushima Prefecture in general. And it would be the end of that that uh, that section of Japan entirely. And I think the political decision was made then to sort of arbitrarily cut off this area around Fukushima for evacuation zone, um, which I believe, I, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I believe it was originally 40 kilometers, but that uh, has now, of course, been reduced to the area directly around the plant and business and life is going on, quote unquote, as usual for many of the people who were evacuated and have actually returned to their their areas of Fukushima. There are other evacuees who are still living in uh, in basically makeshift housing that's been provided um, by the government, but is uh, they're still very much up in the air in terms of their their funding and how the, how long they'll be able to continue to do this. There are even groups of evacuees who have had to sue the government and TEPCO for having promised um, aid, which not only wasn't coming, but even the criteria by which they could apply for the aid was not delivered in time for them to even apply for it and and other types of abuses. Unfortunately, the uh, the, the people who have been most hurt by this disaster are the people directly around Fukushima who have been basically sold one lie, uh, one lie after another throughout the entirety of this process. And they are definitely the losers in all of this. I also read a report um, which uh, alleged that some people were being given financial incentives basically to return to their homes, which were presumably in an area that had been originally had been evacuated. Yes, yes, that's right. And again, unfortunately, I'm not prepared. I don't have the, the numbers in front of me. I know that 
that there are still 215,000 evacuees that are still living away from their homes. Um, but I don't I don't know the uh, the details on on the financial incentives, etc. It's been a, a twisting and, and turning tale that I have been documenting and it is available on FukushimaUpdate.com. One of the tags on the on the right hand bar there is evacuation zone. And if you click on that, you can find out more about the uh, the plight of these people. And again, this story stretches back two and a half years now. So it has taken a lot of twists and turns. And there's been a lot of uh, wrangling about the exclusion zone and the evacuation zone and the increase and decrease and evacuees returning or not returning and the makeshift accommodation that they were provided or not provided and the incentives to return home, et cetera, et cetera. But it has been basically one long nightmare for these evacuees. And again, there's still 215,000 of them that are still living away from their, their uh, prefectural home in Fukushima. Now, we spoke earlier about the central area of interest at the plant, which is uh, in uh, Unit 4 and the pool where they spent uh, fuel rods are being stored. Now, I believe there's up to 1,500 or more of these things that need to be moved. Uh, as mentioned, there, whatever it is, 100 feet in the air, five floors up on this building that has become increasingly unstable, not least because of all the water that seeped into the ground there. If this was to come down, I mean, there could be another tsunami, another earthquake. You know, Japan is obviously somewhat prone to these sort of events. If these were to come down, make contact, if there was an open air reaction, this would be extremely serious. And again, not wanting to over-egg this or be sensationalist, but that would be a very serious event. And I read a report that said it could be something like, in terms of radiation, 15,000 Hiroshima's. And you could be looking at, if that was to happen, perhaps evacuating Tokyo, which on the face of it seems unthinkable. But that's the sort of scale that we potentially could be looking at if things went wrong there. Unfortunately, that's that's exactly right. And to put that in perspective, I'll quote from Arnie Gunderson, who in April of 2012 was talking about this situation. And at the time, he was quoted on a radio program as saying, there's more cesium in that fuel pool than in all of the 800 nuclear bombs that were exploded above ground in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s. But of course, it would happen all at once. It would certainly destroy Japan as a functioning country, and it would spread around the world and make life difficult. Move south of the equator if that ever happened. I think that's the lesson there. That's a direct quote from Arnie Gunderson, once again, of Fairwinds.org, who is a, a former nuclear reactor operator and someone with four decades of experience in the nuclear energy industry. So not someone who's just making that up off the top of his head. He was talking about the event of either a complete loss of uh, water in the spent fuel pool and or a, a containment collapse of the, of the building itself. Um, so perhaps that is slightly different than what we're looking at in regards to the, this removal operation. But still, it does give a sense of how much is at stake with the uh, the possible release of radiation from this spent fuel pool. So uh, so again, it is a, a kind of a ticking ticking time bomb. I, I don't know, I guess that's probably a, a poorly chosen analogy for for number of reasons. But but still, it is a very precarious situation. And there are 1,331 of the spent fuel pools and a further 202 unused assemblies stored in the pool. So in total, 1,500 assemblies, um, 1,300 of them are armed. And uh, just because the, uh, the the term spent fuel pool makes it sound like, oh, this is spent fuel, it's not particularly dangerous. Of course, that only means that it's spent beyond the point of being usable as fuel within the reactor, but it is most certainly still radioactive. And as you indicate, uh, I, I've 
I've read that the number is 14,000 Hiroshima bombs or a number equivalent, uh, in fact, exceeding the 800 plus new open air nuclear tests that were conducted from the 40s through the 70s. So at any rate, an incredible amount of radiation is sitting there and is going to have to be removed one very uh, nail bitingly slow uh, fuel rod at a time to, until all 1300 plus have been removed. Yeah, and of course, as lots of people have outlined, I mean, this operation is, given that most of us, you know, you and I and the general public, we know next to nothing about what goes on in nuclear power plants. But when you read the details, just even a a brief outline of technically what would be required in this operation to remove them, it just the, the, the scope for for error, I mean, is is immense. I mean, it's almost like nothing can, you know, one mistake, and that could that could be it. It's it's incredibly complex and difficult. It is, and and just to give a, a sense of that difficulty, I'll read from an article that was posted on FukushimaUpdate.com that was describing the the process and what's at stake here. Um, it's called uh, the real Fukushima danger spent fuel pools, and uh, that's available on FukushimaUpdate.com. And it says, uh, for example, quote, uh, the fuel assemblies have to be first pulled from the racks they are stored in, then inserted into a heavy steel chamber. This operation takes place underwater before the chamber, which shields the radiation pulsating from the rods, can be can be removed from the pool, pool and lowered to ground level. The chamber is then transported to the plant's common storage pool in an undamaged building where the assemblies will be stored. Uh, TEPCO confirmed the reactor number four fuel pool contains debris during an investigation into the chamber earlier this month. Removing the rods from the pool is a delicate task, normally assisted by computers, according to Toshio Kimura, a former TEPCO technician who worked at Fukushima Daiichi for 11 years. Previously, it was a computer-controlled process that memorized the exact location of the rods down to the millimeter, and now they don't have that. It has to be done manually, so there is a high risk that they will drop and break one of the fuel rods. Corrosion from the salt water will also have uh, will have also weakened the building and equipment, he said. And if another strong earthquake strikes before the fuel is fully removed that topples the building or punctures the pool and allows the water to drain, a spent fuel fire releasing more radiation than during the initial disaster is possible, threatening uh, Tokyo about 200 kilometers away. So once again, an exceptionally difficult operation and an exceptionally uh, dangerous one. And this is all going to start happening in the next couple of months. Now, another issue, and I'm not sure how this affected people working on Three Mile Island or Chernobyl, is that one of the things at Fukushima is that the experienced workers, the people who most you know understand what's needed here, and they're reaching their exposure limits with regards to radiation. So the overall level of experience of workers is kind of declining. You might have an experienced team leader, but you've got a team that are relatively inexperienced. And this is coming at a time when the, the work that needs to be done there is, as we just mentioned, is becoming critical. Well, that's right. And, and in fact, there's been a, a question for a long time about the, the labor standards that they're using at the plant and who really has been has been working there. And uh, in fact, there's been a number of uh, studies into sort of who's who's working there and how they've been employed and and how they are uh, being continually cheated by their employer. And in fact, at one point, I believe there was an investigation into the fact that the badges, the radiation monitor badges that they were given were in fact fakes. So uh, so again, there's been an, an incredible number of alarming things that have been going on there. 
and uh, and I think we probably will uh, will either never know the full extent of the the situation that the workers are experiencing there, or it will only come out gradually over a period of decades, probably long after most of them are dead anyway. Um, we can assume that uh, that a lot of the people who are working there are working under pretty appalling conditions, and uh, and there have been suggestions that some of the uh, the staffing there is being done by the the Japanese mafia in collaboration with the the TEPCO and the nuclear industry because there has been a uh, historical connection between the two for a long time so one can only imagine the types of things that that some of the workers are going through and have been through and again this goes back to things like the Fukushima 50 the uh, the workers who scrambled to to basically maintain control of the plant in the early weeks who uh, uh, pretty much believed themselves to be taking on suicide mission but uh, we're doing so for the sake of not only the rest of japan but the rest of humanity really and deserve our our admiration for what they did but uh will in fact have been so thoroughly um swept under the rug that uh that recently i believe even the uh, the japanese prime minister refused to meet with them to even um give them that much exposure in the in the japanese media so so again there's uh, uh i think another aspect of the the, the people who have been uh, most abused in the, all of this are, are the workers themselves, just like the uh, the people around the plant. And of course, let's not also forget the uh, the children. And uh, recently, again, I was watching a, a pretty heartbreaking documentary showing some of the uh, the children who were playing in one of the uh, the areas in Fukushima City, and uh, which had been decontaminated, quote unquote, but uh, still in- included areas where that were basically no go zones for the children. And they all knew about this. For example, don't go near the slide. That's uh, that's still very radioactive. And all of these children were wearing their little radiation badges to make sure that they didn't um, they weren't exposed to too much uh, radiation. So uh, uh, an exceptionally appallingly sad state of affairs for for everyone involved. And again, it goes back time and again to the fundamental corruption and rot at the base of uh, the nuclear industry, not only in Japan, but um, uh, of course, exceptionally um, on display in Japan in the wake of this crisis. Now, we also read recently that TEPCO are facing bankruptcy. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised by that. But in one way, that shouldn't even be an issue. If if that company is going to be dissolved in due course, and you know shareholders lose everything and all the people who are employed there are now unemployed that shouldn't be an issue in right now in dealing with this extending from that is what on earth has been going on there with regards international aid i'm sure you've been in the same position i and everyone i've talked to cannot understand why there was not instantly or almost instantly teams from all over the world with the best expertise in dealing with this to get on the ground as soon as possible. It's just been bizarre to watch the lack of cooperation and coordination in that sense. That's right. Well, it, it was certainly, I think, more understandable during the, well, at least the ostensibly, ostensibly during the Cold War there in the 1980s during the Chernobyl disaster when the Soviet Union was still very much a sheltered society and um, the, the admittance of UN personnel to the site was was a major, major deal at the time. But uh, it's, it, it is certainly much more uh, eyebrow-raisingly bizarre that uh, that's, uh, there has been so little outside international assistance going on at uh, 
at the Fukushima site. And that, I think, has to be chalked up to the fact that we um, perhaps our incredulity is just an expression of our own naivety, that we believe that there are people who are um, genuinely concerned about making sure that the Fukushima site is uh, as under control as it can be. Whereas I think that there are, in fact, much stronger and much more financially motivated interests that are interested in making sure that the Fukushima situation is not seen to be a disastrous situation. Um, And uh, again, there are billions upon billions upon billions of dollars in the nuclear energy industry throughout the world that rides on the idea that nuclear safety is fundamental, nuclear energy is fundamentally safe. And of course, that could be exposed by the type of uh, events that are happening at Fukushima if there is a a, a reaction that that shows the extent of the the scale of what happened there. If the reaction is seen to be very small and, oh, well, they have everything under control, as Abe um, recently told the International Olympic Committee when he lied to them in order to get the Tokyo Olympics for 2020, then, then the nuclear energy industry benefits. And of course, as the adjunct to that, as we talked about the last time I was on your program, the adjunct to that is the nuclear weapons industry, which of course goes hand in hand with nuclear energy. So I think there are very powerful interests that are motivated in making sure that this is not seen as a disaster and that this is downplayed as much as possible. And I I think that really does have to be at the root of of why we have seen so little um, so little international attention focused on Fukushima and why they were so quick to try to cover it up in December of 2011 by claiming cold shutdown. And again, I think this goes back to the International Atomic Energy Agency, which at its root is ultimately there to protect the nuclear energy industry. It is not there to challenge it or to to fundamentally question its existence. It is there to make sure that nuclear energy can continue into the future. And in order to do that, they do have to uh, basically downplay the situation as much as possible and it's a pretty horrific thing to, to consider that they are playing with the lives of the people in that area certainly and potentially with people around the entire northern hemisphere when they do so but uh, but I think that that's the calculus that has been made and I, 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 I really don't see any other explanation for the type of lack of action that we've seen at the site. Despite the downplaying of the situation as you mentioned the global reaction to what's going on in Fukushima has been significant um, recent numbers show a a marked downturn in sentiment regarding nuclear energy in the US. We see Angela Merkel in Germany shutting down their nuclear plants. And some commentators have said that medium to long term, this is basically the death knell for the nuclear industry. Now, we did discuss this, as I say, when you were on last year. Um, what's your take on that situation as of now? I wish I could be optimistic in that regard because I'm certainly no fan of the nuclear energy industry or at least not the nuclear energy industry as it's developed around these uranium reactors, which are these types of disasters waiting to happen, especially the GE Mark 1s that not only is the design that was used at Fukushima, but in fact, uh, I believe there's upwards of 26 of them uh, in use in the United States right now, the exact same design. So these are uh, disasters waiting to happen and whether that disaster takes, uh, it happens once every 10 years or 50 50 years or 100 years or 1,000 years or 10,000 years, it's still too much of a risk, I think, fundamentally to take. But I am not optimistic that this is the end of the nuclear energy industry. In fact, quite uh, quite the opposite. I have been for, for some time now under the impression that the window of opportunity in Japan here for truly getting rid of nuclear power and, and transitioning off onto something else has been closing, if not closed for some time now, and especially now that Shinzo Abe is in power and seems to be 
all uh, 100% on board with starting up the reactors once again and getting nuclear energy going on on Jap- you know, the islands of Japan once again. Um, the recent uh, remarks from from Prime Minister Koizumi is an interesting turn of, turnaround, and we'll see if that has any political ramifications. But I think that there is just too much invested um, in every possible sense in in the continuation of the in- industry here in Japan. And I think as an adjunct to that, um, the nuclear energy industry around the world, and in fact, one of the planks of the so-called Abenomics that the, the prime minister here, Shinzo Abe, is attempting to use to kickstart the Japanese economy after its two decades of stagnation is the export of uh, nuclear technologies. That is one of the planks of, of what he's attempting to do. So uh, again, I think not only in terms of uh, nuclear power for Japan, but I think uh, the, the just the supporting the industry generally so that they can export to other markets around the world is very much part of the political agenda of what's happening here. And I, I just do not see the kind of political in, uh, uh, motivation ar- around the world to, to really push back against this. There has been, uh, as you say, uh, an increase in, in negative sentiment around the world uh, against nuclear power. There has been a, a kind of pushback, but it, I, I don't think it's anywhere near enough to, to fundamentally change uh, the, the industry. And, um, and I'm willing and happy and, and waiting to be proved wrong on that point. But uh, at this point, uh, you're on from our past conversation. It seems even more inevitable that just business will return to normal within the uh, within a, a period of years here in Japan. It might take a decade or so, but at any rate, I, it seems that it, pretty inevitable at this point that the reactors will be turned back on. Well, in any case, without nuclear, what would the future of Japan's energy situation look like? You know, because it's a relatively small country, you know, densely populated technologically very advanced the energy requirements are intensive what would, what would japan look like without nuclear you think you know can we envision that I think we can, and um, it would clearly be an extremely large undertaking, but extremely large undertakings should not be a, a, a disincentive for a, a country that completely and utterly transformed itself uh, after the Second World War, for example. So um, so I think it's the type of thing that would, if, if, it, if it wasn't feasible in Japan, I'm not sure it would be feasible anywhere. So I think it, it can be done. And in fact, there have been developments in recent years that that do look promising for alternative types of energy that are that could even be locally sourced, including so-called fire ice, which is a methane hydrate that is currently being experimentally extracted from the seabeds around Japan and which could be used as a, a, a type of locally produced uh, natural gas alternative, which would be an extremely um, large boon for the Japanese economy if it did pan out that way. Um, this type of technology is not expected to be viably in place, even if it does prove successful until 2018, 2019. But at any rate, it's one of those technologies on the horizon that could potentially be the answer to that question. And there are several others. I mean, I've talked in the past, for example, about thorium reactor, nuclear reactors um, that are based based on fundamentally different properties than the uranium reactors, which uh, which are the basis of the the energy industry as we understand them today. And that uh, have built-in safeties that uh, that basically just aren't even possible in uranium reactors. I've also talked about uh, other types of alternative energies that are being worked on and developed right now, including tidal energies, which I think for an island nation of Japan is especially promising. Um, But again, um, all of this does depend on the type of investment in those technologies that I don't think we are likely to see, at at least not while there's an administration in place that is so gung-ho about 
turning those reactors back on because again the the incentive is built in to um to not look at those those alternative energies and to uh, just simply go ahead with uh, with business as usual in nuclear energy uh, production. I think there are alternatives. And again, I did an entire podcast episode on that very subject. It's called Fukushima's Biggest Secret. So they can find that in my um, archives at CorbettReport.com. And I hope they will do so because I, in that uh, uh, episode, I talked specifically about some of the ideas that are on the table if Japan were serious about getting off of nuclear power. And again, it's not a, an easy process. It would not be something that they would be able to simply flip a switch, to use that analogy, and, and make it happen. It would be a, an exceptionally difficult process that would take probably in the long run decades to fully implement. But I think it can be done. And uh, and I think for the sake of the planet, increasingly what Fukushima has taught us is that it really does need to be to be investigated you mentioned thorium reactors and obviously that's a whole other discussion so can't really get off and uh, do you know a big technical analysis of that but i have to say that i haven't read masses about that but i have read some and it hasn't been particularly encouraging it's basically been that yeah this is a theoretical thing but it's not really viable and if it was going to happen it would have happened by now Yes, there there certainly is that strand. I, I don't want to promote it as an unproblematic savior. There are certainly a lot of things that would have to be worked out. And um, But I, my understanding is that basically thorium reactor technologies have not been invested in simply because the uranium-plutonium uh, basis for the nuclear energy industry has already been sort of hardwired into place, especially during the Adams for Peace period in the 1950s when it was kind of standardized to the system that we have today. If there was a similar amount of research going on into nuclear uh, th- thorium nuclear reactors as there was into uranium reactors back in the 1940s and 50s, I think we would see the, the types of uh, breakthroughs that we would expect. The, to to be be able to bring this technology to market and there are some experimental reactors etc that have been tried in the past and that and there are still uh, experiments that are going on but it is certainly it, it it is certainly a long way off from coming to to reality at any rate and it would require a significant investment and it would require i think probably the type of investment that we saw in the 1950s, specifically being backed by a large government like the United States with backing the, the uranium industry, it would require, I think, a similar type of investment of resources um, and and uh, potentially uh, a government like Japan, if it was really interested in pursuing alternatives, could uh, provide the, the basis for that type of research. But again, it is still uh, not not something that could be implemented overnight, and it would be uh, something that, that's a laborious process to get from here to there. There is no, I think, easy alternative uh, here. I think it, whatever course is going to take, it's going to take a significant investment of resources to get us there. But that, unfortunately, is, is exactly the point. We've already kind of bought onto the system um, of the the uranium plutonium system because that's basically what exists. But uh, but it's it's of course a fallacy just to say that well we've already invested in this system so we might as well continue using it, um, especially when we've seen what can happen in places like uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima. Getting away from the governments and the media and whatever they're up to regarding all this, get down to a personal level. I mean, have you been affected by this at all? And if I was to fly over there tomorrow and get on the ground, not in Fukushima, but just, you know, elsewhere in Japan, would I see, would I notice any signs that that this situation is affecting daily life? 
Uh, certainly not as a tourist. I don't think you would ever come across anything um, on the surface of Japanese society about this. And I, I, I think that's just another facet of Japanese society. That's not to say that there aren't people who are concerned about this. And it's not to say that there are things that are happening here um, in terms of political movements, in terms of uh, even just things like sourcing um, foods that have been radiation tested, etc. There are those types of things that exist here, but they're not the kind of thing that I think a casual observer would see on the surface of Japanese society. I think you'd have to be kind of living here to, to be able to source them out. And that's exactly what myself and my wife are doing. Um, we have basically eschewed seafood unless we can source exactly where it's coming from. And it's coming from nowhere near Fukushima. Um, obviously, um, basically anything in the Pacific we're trying to avoid, um, which basically means that for more all intents and purposes, uh, seafood is out. We haven't even sushi, for example, since the disaster took place. And we're going to continue to do that. And we're also part of a, a, a cooperative, a, a co-op that sources um, uh, organic and radiation tested foods from Kyushu and uh, other places that have been the least affected by the fallout from the initial Fukushima disaster. So, so we are very, very much con conscious of what we're eating because it's the ingestion at this point that I think is the major concern. Um, and especially when you look at the SafeCast maps, for example, uh, SafeCast.org provides radiation maps that are compiled from um, basically individuals with their own Geiger counters feed into this system, and it compiles the radiation readings and, and creates a map. And it shows that the, the sort of ambient atmospheric radiation, of course, is high around Fukushima itself, but uh, elsewhere in Japan is, in fact, in some places even lower than in various parts of the United States, just because of ambient uh, atmospheric radiation and because of nuclear testing and the like that's gone on in the States and, and all of those types of factors. So I think the perception that this is some something that's that's sort of hovering around in the air is is a mistaken one. And I think that the real problem is the the food. And of course, to a certain extent, I, I mean, it's difficult to to make sure 100% that everything that you eat where it, exactly it's coming from. And just another example of that, just uh, in the last 24 hours, I saw a new story saying that uh, Yoshinoya, which is a Japanese fast food chain that uh, that serves beef on rice as the kind of national fast food um, item of choice among Japanese, um, is now going to start growing growing their rice and vegetables in Fukushima specifically because it's it's cheaper to do so and they want to secure the lowest prices they can for their customers. So there's an entire fast food chain that, uh, although I hardly ever go there anywhere, anyway, I will make a, 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 a special concern to to avoid at all costs from now on. So so it's things like that that unfortunately it has one has to be very careful about. And it can be done, but um, it certainly does on a daily basis um, put make one put a lot more effort and thought into what one's going to eat and put into their body. And radiation, anyway, is an interesting case because if you think about it, if you could see it or smell it, imagine how different this whole situation would be. Exactly right. Exactly right. And and it is uh, again, it is the type of thing that is that has been ingrained certainly through a, a generation that was kind of shell-shocked during the Cold War into constantly expecting the end of the world through nuclear warfare. We have been subjected to, I think, a lot of very scary propaganda about about radiation and and what it is and i think we have to have a more nuanced understanding of what radiation even is and the fact that we are constantly surrounded by it in various forms and in various uh, quantities so i think we have to put radiation risks in a reasonable perspective 
But having said that, of course, I don't think we can simply rely on government pronouncements of safety of the Fukushima situation. And as especially as we've seen time and time again, as they've come out years after the events to to uh, announce various parts of this this disaster that still they uh, I think it's safe to say they're still continuing to keep certain aspects of this information from us. So unfortunately, we have to walk that tight line of not panicking unnecessarily, but not um, trusting unnecessarily either. And that's a difficult line to walk because it requires basically constantly searching out and and processing and understanding this this information and what it's really saying to us. And unfortunately, again, that involves certain a certain amount of personal interpretation. Different people will interpret the data differently, which is why I hope that Fukushima Update is just a resource that people can go to for the for the raw information as much as that can be provided. And hopefully people will be able to use that to come to their own conclusions about what's happening and what, uh, what they need to do. Okay, James. Well, just in closing, your personal take, I won't hold you to this, but regarding Fukushima, best worst case scenarios as you see things as they stand now? That's a very good question because the best case scenario that I can possibly see at this point is that things are maintained, uh, I, I suppose, in roughly the state that they are. And that's that's not a, a, a good scenario, but I think it's the best that we could hope for at this point um, and that uh, that basically the main concern is are these are these leaks in the water containment and, and in the reactor buildings, et cetera, that uh, continue to leak out into the ocean, but that they can they can be more or less contained and that uh, and that the fuel rod removal from re- reactor four goes smoothly and and all of that. I mean, and there are no further problems and that eventually they're able to uh, to basically get into the cores and examine and, and uh, get them contained in some manner. Uh, I think that would be the best case scenario that we we could possibly envision. And even in that, I, I mean, I think we would have to, uh, in the best case scenario, still look at the government estimates of half a trillion dollars in 40 years before this situation is really even partially under control. So that's that's a best case scenario. And of course, worst case scenario, well, we have talked about the possibility of what happens in the spent fuel pool if there's a problem there during the removal process. So so again, worst case scenario, we have a, a, a an almost unfathomable event of an equivalent of 14,000 Hiroshima bombs being released to the atmosphere all at once. And I would prefer not to think about that. But unfortunately, it's something that we do have to realize is a possibility. And it's something that we have to be aware of, and I think, uh, prepared for in whatever way we can. Well, we'll see what happens. I guess I'll see you you same time next year and see where we are. But James, tell people about Corbett Report. You mentioned Fukushima Update, just any resources, websites, anything you'd like to share? Well, I guess the best place for people to go is CorbettReport.com. And from there, you can find links to all of my other work, including FukushimaUpdate.com, which I think is most pertinent to this conversation. That was the website I started, I believe, back in October of 2011 and that I'm maintaining on, if not a daily basis, at least several times a week, it's being updated with new stories. Um, I also have uh, an associate editor working on that site, Brock West, who runs a site called the Asia Pacific Perspective at APPerspective.net. So he's uh, he's helping me to keep that site updated with as as relevant and pertinent information as we can. So people who are interested in Fukushima specifically should uh, should probably head to FukushimaUpdate.com and keep it in their bookmarks. Excellent. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you for the opportunity. And I, I can't say I look forward to talking to you again next year, but at any rate, I do appreciate the opportunity to spread this information. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's legalizefreedom.com. 
legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.